0: hello my friends and welcome back to idle chatter i'm your host ray bohacks the hot rod farmer corn picking hot rod farmer so we're uh, i guess we could say deep into our uh, into the blessing of harvest and moving from the first planting which was put in the ground may 12th to the uh, to the second planting and uh well let me give you a status report on the first one right so uh that first planting never really does well for me, and uh, for a number of reasons. It gets shadowed a lot by trees, so in other words, when the, when the corn is in it, the, the vegetative stage, it looks, it looks gorgeous, beautiful. I mean, uh, put it on a calendar, thank God, put it on a, a, cat, a seed catalog, and then uh, once it starts to go into the reproductive stage, because of the uh, shadows that where the trees block the sunlight for a part of the morning that it never really materializes and it makes an ear but it doesn't really make a good ear The first couple rows uh maybe seven or eight rows i would say uh, which is i mean which is a lot and i would love to cut some of those trees down but that gets to be they're quite large and uh i cannot do that by myself and have to bring somebody in so i have to i have to look to look to, to, to at least top those trees off and get the branches off of them but whatever but So, and then as you move further away from the tree line, obviously the corn looks good, uh, or the plants look good, but anyway, the the thing is, I'm not laughing, I was, um, I mean, it was, I don't want to say I was almost crying, because I've cried in the field, I'm not embarrassed to say that, and, you know, seen devastation, which I'm sure we all have done that, and uh, even though if you don't want to admit it, but it got just, at first, planting got it, you know, I write I write off the losses by the, the by the trees where I mean the ear grows, but it's small. It's not a marketable ear. You know, when you're in the fresh market sweet corn business, you deal with you look for marketability of an ear of corn. It's not like you're running it through a combine or running it through a uh, a corn picker, and it's going through a, a processing plant, and even if it has a little some kernels on it, it's going into a you know into a can of sweet corn. But when you're doing roadside and fresh market corn, then obviously you have to have a marketable ear. But anyway, I was in there. uh, So the shaded area, I kind of you know, I knew I know about that. But to make a long story short, boy, did it get hit hard by birds, uh, bear, at least one bear, and uh, squirrels, and deer. My my deer fence works. The deer, no deer damage whatsoever. Very little raccoon damage uh this year but the bears hit me hard but specifically the squirrels and the uh birds the birds just go and they shred the top of the um the husk by the silks there i guess to look for insects it looks like you took razor blades to it and then they pull it down and then the uh, squirrels they uh, i love all of god's creation but somebody's got to talk to those squirrels because they just go i mean it's amazing because and my population is 20,400 per acre and you could say all right well 20,400 per acre and if you and if you farm <laughs> you certainly if you grow corn or any crop it certainly resonates with you if you're a cattleman if you've had that experience or you're doing something else and uh I forgot to disconnect the phone so I have to hold on for a second here sorry sorry about that sorry about that so uh but uh, I just came in from uh, from the field picking, so i This so it was probably going to be a little bit on the. Uh, I don't want to say sl- sloppy side, but I know I forgot to do something. So anyway, so what happened was that uh, I kind of lost my thought with that phone call. But uh, these the the squirrels just go and they. They peel back so many corn, like I said, twenty thousand four hundred per acre. You say, All right, well, what can a couple of squirrels do? What can some birds do? Right, well, let me put it this way. At least what the bear takes and knocks down, he eats, then he eats it beautifully. So we tell people our our corn is bear approved. And um it's uh he he takes it and he, he husks it nicely and he rolls it all around and eats everything but he does i mean he lays down and does a lot of damage when he's laying down but the other than that at least he eats it but the squirrels they're terrible and the birds i mean you wouldn't think that a bird would go to almost every ear or corner every other year unbelievable so that's the story and the bear is following um From the first planting into the second planting, I said to my wife, I don't need to know, go into the field to see if it's ripe, I just see what the bear, if the bear is in there. Then you know, the bear, the birds and the squirrels, they know exactly when it's ripe. I was in there four or five days before it was ready, and there was hardly any damage. So they're good bellwethers for what's going on. So we'll see, but um, it's really disheartening to see all of that corn destroyed and... It, it's it's uh, it breaks your heart when you just see the husk pulled three quarters of the way down and it's all dried out and and five or six kernels are taken or, or eaten off of it. So what are you going to do? That's uh, that's what we're up against here. But on a positive note, uh, but I do want to say I should say, but well, this is not the positive note I wanted to say. But uh, on a positive note is that. What we do, what we are harvesting, is beautiful, and what they destroyed is was was beautiful also. So agronomically, then it's it's all working, and I'm happy about that. The only thing I need to do is cut back that tree line, and get some more sun on those corners of the field, the perimeter of the field over there, and we'll be all good to go. But the um, but the other guys, I don't know, I have to talk talk to them, the bear and the uh, squirrels and the birds about that. But on this is the positive note I want to talk about. I want to give some shout-outs because I got some more pins in my map. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, I've just moved the chair here. It's creaky. Sorry about that. But um, I have a map in my office, and I've been saying on the radio show and on the podcast that I'd like to put a pin in the map and find out where my listeners are. And I have, a, I have to give a couple of shout-outs today. And the first shout-out is to Mr. Russell Orr. O R R. so i'm probably pronouncing it correctly and he's from gray ridge missouri and they grow rice and soybeans there in gray ridge missouri and he listens to the podcast idle chatter and he wrote uh, and he just wrote a very very nice note that i just want to thank you for that and i will not share that with the audience because i don't want anyone to think that you have to write a note or something this is i'm looking for accolades i'm looking for pats on the back i certainly am not i just want to know where you are and i'm glad that uh you listen mr Orr. we actually he also asked me a question so his question is going to be the um the special delivery letter so rice and soybeans in gray ridge missouri and then dr keith Stearns, and he's very and dr Stearns listens for in two areas two places alpine texas which he said is north of big bend in texas west texas and then in, in then uh in new pine creek oregon which is 18 miles south of lakeview and it is near the california oregon border and 15 miles from nevada so he's right in that corner that you know where you have nevada oregon california All together, so that sounds that is sounds like Miss. And he listens. He says to me, he listens to the show on Sirius XM. He listens to to uh, Farm Machinery Digest Radio, and uh, so he's getting two pins. He's getting pins. He's getting a pin in the map in Alpine, Texas, and then he's getting a pin in the map in New Pine Creek, Oregon. Those are two beautiful uh, areas. For the best of my knowledge, I don't know those particular towns. But that neck of the woods i know is quite quite lovely and some of god's finest uh, handiwork is there so it's very blessed to be able to hang his hat on those two properties and then last but not least i have to, this is the department of corrections because i thought that my youngest listener was little sam barlieb and but then i found out that that was incorrect so I have a younger listener, and it's his sister, six-year-old Reagan Barlieb from Stuartsville, New Jersey, and she listens. She's going to be a hot rod farmer, and she listens to the uh, to the radio show on Sirius XM. And she's also very involved with the family's garden on their property in Stewartville, New Jersey, and she is the official sweet corn picker. So hey, I could get her over here on the farm and get, maybe get her over here to help pick some sweet corn. So a, a big shout out to Reagan Barlieb, and uh, that is Sam Barlieb's little sister. And as I said last week, I had met them. I wasn't met, I was introduced, I was exposed to them is a the better word, on the plane to commodity classic and then our paths had crossed later on so uh so hey so if anybody else so we got a six-year-old girl as our youngest listener and an eight-year-old boy so any parents that are out there have any listeners they don't have to be younger than that but uh i'd love to put a pin in the map so there's going to be two pins actually in the map in Stewartsville, new jersey for the the brother and sister team you ready so that's what we are up to here all right, so let me get into this uh, into this show today, and not, not waste your time. Like I said, I apologize if I'm a little bit disjointed. It's uh, just came out of the field with picking, and uh, and it's a uh, bringing it up to the uh, farm stand. And we got a new picker, a new new crew member here, and Ro- Robert Decker is working out very very well. So we have Robert Decker, we have uh, uh, Lucas Sanchez. And we have uh, Max Wolf and possibly AJ AJ came by the farm the other day, which is Max Wolf's cousin. And so he's originally from California and now lives in New Jersey. So but we are got, we're getting a good, we have a good picking crew here, and I'm in there picking alongside of them. So as I said, if I feel a little bit disjointed, it's uh, just came out of the field and want me to get this show up and running to you. So what we are going to talk about today, is, uh, I, I'm trying. I'm struggling with the words as I usually do. For how because it it it's how I could identify this the topic to you, and I think the best way for me to identify the topic to you is tell you a little bit of story about m- me and my health, and that's what's going to be the segue. And I'll try not to <laughs> go on for twelve years here, but that's going to be the segue into what we're going to. Do talking about diagnosing mechanical things, and we've discussed about this before, but I want to take it to a different level in this direction. When I, as a young boy, I was I was very sick, sickly. My mother used to say she used to call me sickly, and um, we'd go to the doctor. And you know, this was years ago, and they didn't have all the medical things they have today. But anyway, I was very sickly, and the doctor would um, would would do a CBC blood count on me and tell me that I was anemic. And my mother was actually uh, so taken back by that. And she, I'm not going to use the word that she was offended, but uh, she was embarrassed because I remember as a young boy Italian doctor, but I cook, you know, I I, I cook the best meats. I do this, he gets, he has red meat, he has this, he has, you know, uh, the spinach, he has this, whatever. And, uh, And she didn't want the doctor to think that she wasn't taking good care of me or feeding my sister and I properly but i had a lot of issues especially as i got into junior high school um, elementary school wasn't bad and then when i got into junior high school it started to what some parts of the country call it middle school but over here on the east coast our junior high school was seventh eighth and ninth grade we didn't go to high school till it was tenth so it was tenth eleventh and twelfth in high school but anyway what what happened was that I would wake up in, in the morning and I would just wouldn't feel good and uh, had a, had a digestive issues and what have you, a bunch of things going on and my parents took me to a lot a lot of doctors and had a whole battery of tests by the time I was twelve or thirteen years old they had four or five GI series upper GI lower GI had electroencephalograms had uh, they sent me to a psychologist or psychiatrist down when they gave me one of those Rorschach blot tests and uh, of course they said well maybe um, I don't want to go to school it's psychosomatic or what have you and they really couldn't find out what was wrong with me I had some of the symptoms but I didn't have it an, and I learned in the medical community and I'm sure there's some doctors that are listening to this that could correct me but in the medical community they use the word presents and they say, well that's the this disease or this malady presents this way. And I use that term in in, in engineering and in mechanical stuff. So you know if uh, if the car, the engine is stalling for whatever, for whatever it's stalling, and you say, Well the tire pressure is low. Well, you know, tire pressure doesn't present with an engine stalling. Tire pressure presents with a rough ride, with a uh, the vehicle pulling to, to pulling to one side and what have you—that's how low tire pressure presents. It doesn't present; what doesn't cause the engine to stall. So, in the medical community, though they used to use the word "presents," and what happened was that I was a medical—I still am—a a, a medical mystery, and because I would have the symptoms, but the symptoms were so all over the map that they didn't. Pre- present in any pati- for any particular ailment so i it, it i had partial symptoms of this and partial symptoms of that and what the doctors were looking for was textbook thing oh uh, boom 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 you have this this says okay you have this disease or you have this problem or what have you and i didn't have that and then so they were looking for, all over looking at psychological issues and what have you and then When I got into high school, I kind of—I don't want to say—grew I out of it. I really didn't grow out of it. I guess I was able to better deal with it. And then, as I got out of high school and went into college, I still, you know, had had issues and uh, other issues uh, popped up. Where my one—I remember my my right armpit would perspire when I was in college, like anything. I mean, it was terrible in the winter because it, it would be there'd be no no odor. I mean, so I wore the odor. It wasn't there. Be, Would be no odor, but you'd go out in the winter, and your 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 sweat or your thermal undershirt under your right arm is sopping wet. I mean, it's twelve degrees outside, and your armpit is sopping wet, and then it's freezing because it's, the the shirt is so wet. And there was uh, and I I went through that for a couple of years, and that kind of changed, and then I had an issue where, I, my friend Glenn, when we were in college. I was doing a brake job on his Buick and he had gotten into an accident and a rear drum got whacked on pretty hard because the car got hit that way, got t-boned in a rear wheel and I couldn't get then, working outside in the ground and it, it was like, I literally, it was near zero, but I couldn't do that today, but near zero, but you're young and, uh, ended up getting very, very sick, Uh and I attributed to my mother attributed to me being outside in the cold on the sitting on the ground, working on this Buick and getting the brakes, getting the brakes done, rear brakes on, and getting this drum off, and so basically I got I got sick. I mean, it wasn't like I got pneumonia. I don't know what, what I got, but then I ended up so I got sick and I ended up running a high fever, and uh, I think it was about a hundred four or hundred five. I got a high fever, and then. Uh, so I got very sick from that, and then after the fever broke, I don't think I went to the doctor. I, I don't remember. I don't think so because that particular point doctors weren't making house calls already. So, so the fever the fever eventually broke. I mean, that eventually it was a couple of days, the day or two. The fever broke, and you know I felt spent, but I was fine. And but that was like in January or February. And then what would happen is every six months after that, and you're gonna think this is crazy. Every six months after that, my hands would would start to peel. So it would be like I would be like a snake. I would be shedding a skin, and uh, it would be almost like when you got a blister. It didn't hurt or anything, but my my fingers, my skin on my fingers would start to shed. And ever since I had that high fever when I was a you know teenager, that happened, and that happened for four or five years, and then. That went away, so that was the cycle of my life. And then eventually, I was di- diagnosed with uh, oh. Then they told me I had um, hypoglycemia, and I went for a hypoglycemia test. And I couldn't pass, I couldn't take the test. I'm not passing. I failed it because you have to uh, fast for so many hours. And then when, uh, for twenty four hours, and then when I started to fast for twenty four hours, I would faint, and uh, and the doctor, uh, I was not feeling well. And the doctor drew blood on me to look at my blood sugar, and uh, I I collapsed. And then it's not like I had never had blood taken out of me before, but I'd never fasted for twenty four hours and then had blood taken out of me. So I was in the doctor's office, laying on a couch for about five or six hours, almost went into shock. And then he said to me, well. You failed the test, meaning we couldn't get any results. But from your symptoms, you have hypoglycemia. So just consider you have hypoglycemia, even though it's not documented. So that was basically that. And then, so all my life, I faced these different things, and it was never textbook. Of and then somehow, by God's grace, they'd cure himself. Would they start to present differently, or I got used to it? So why am I telling you all this? Is because most people and Most doctors and again, most mechanics and people working on equipment look for textbook things to diagnose. All right, there's the tire is losing air. Oh, look, there's a nail in the tire. Let's pull a nail out and let's, let's put a patch on the tire and it will lose air. And sometimes you have that. But my medical history has been the precursor to what my career was in with mechanical things is that it nothing ever presented in the way it should have. And that is what today's show is gonna being a, be about. When you're when you're working on a piece of equipment, on an engine, on a hydraulic system, on a hay baler or what have you, is that it the the issue that you have may not present as it would in a textbook. So how do you go around how do you go about you're fixing that, or I shouldn't say fixing, diagnosing that, so you could fix it. So that is going to be the topic of today's show. And I thought that my medical history, because that's what stumped, stumped the doctors, because the doctors said, well, you have A, B, and C, but you don't have D, E, and F. And then, uh, excuse me, or vice versa. So, uh, And they would throw their hands up, and they would say, well, we don't know what's wrong with him. And then uh, they, I would go about my business and and then it was something else would happen and it was all bizarre things. So the fact of the matter is that when you have a piece of equipment, whether it's an engine, as I said, or transmission, what have you, oftentimes you may run into something, and specifically with the complexity of farm equipment, you may run into something that is a problem. the machine is not feeling well just like i didn't feel well all right that i didn't feel well i couldn't tell you what i really you know how i really felt i just didn't feel well so this machine may not be feeling well or or it may be it may be having some level of what we would call an engineering misbehavior so let's say it keeps throwing a belt off of a combine or it keeps doing a a chain or something on a on a hay bale or or an engine that's stalling or what have you or you a small engine, let's say in a seat tender or a lawnmower, that basically doesn't want to uh, that doesn't want to start all the time, or has some kind of issue. So the first thing that I would say for you to do is give the piece of equipment a good visual and tactile inspection. And what I mean by a tactile inspection, you know, touch things as a mechanic. If you look at a machinist, a person who is a true machinist, what they'll basically do is they'll machine something, and they'll take their finger and they'll run it over. They'll run their finger in in whatever they machine to see what to see what it feels like, then and you need to touch things you need to go out into your field with your crop and you need to you know to, to to pull on the corn right the corn stalk and see if it's got root worm if the stalk comes flying right out of the ground or bus you need to touch things and a lot of people say in mechanics don't touch things and that's a that is a diagnostic step the it, to the tactile the touch to feel of something to try to move something around say look this thing has play in it so uh Let's say you're having something where it's throwing a belt off all the time, and you go and you look at it, and you say, well, geez, you know, uh, what's going on over here? And you start to grab the pulleys, and you move them left and right, and you say, well, geez, you know, it doesn't have that much play in it, but yet it's throwing the belt off. And so, but you need to take that as what I would call a data point in your diagnostics. I'm not saying you run completely down that road, but oftentimes People look at things, or they stumble upon things. They see something, and they say, "Ah, that doesn't, that doesn't mean anything. That doesn't mean anything. That doesn't mean anything." So, well, if you have a lot of that, don't mean anything. Well, basically, you're doing nothing because nothing means anything in life, right? No, no, this doesn't mean anything. You know, it's leaking oil. Doesn't mean anything. This is that's this is happening. Doesn't mean anything. So, they take that and they do. They use that and they keep discounting things because they're looking for what I basically call the connecting rod through the block or the nail in the tire. They're looking for the smoke gun and when you have some sort of misbehavior or intermittent problems like the show a few weeks back in electronics uh intermittent problems all of those you can't just discount all of those and say it doesn't mean anything uh you need to keep that in the back of your mind and go down possibly go down that road and that is what the doctors were not doing with me let's go get a gi series okay fine oh we see something on a gi but that don't mean anything and then uh, we saw this on it we saw this in your uh, and that don't mean anything we saw this in your blood but that don't mean anything well to put closure to that story of me as i go into this is that they found out that i that i have celiac disease and this was found out many many years later and my body chemistry because of me having celi- celiac disease would skew and it would depending upon and so depending upon how it's skewed would have an adverse effect so it would be no different than saying well if you have nutrient tie-up because in your soil, because of base saturation is wrong. And that is why my I was anemic, even though my mother was feeding me properly and I was eating the proper things because of my celiac disease, my body was not able to process those vitamins. And thus it would be just like having a plant than saying that you have the nutrient in the ground, but it's tied up and it can't, it's not, in, it's not getting into the plant. And that's what was happening with me. But why I even told, why I told you that story also is that it kept presenting in a different way, because with my skin peeling after I had the fever, all these other things, all these other things kept presenting because my body chemistry was so messed up, because I was my mother was a wonderful cook and I was a bread eater, so uh, so I was constantly poisoning myself with the celiac's and thus it went and depending upon how my body chemistry went at that particular moment, then I had that type of symptom. So the same thing happens with machinery. It obviously doesn't get celiac disease, but what you're seeing may not present in a textbook way or present in something so totally different that you say, how can that How can that be? So what I want you to do is when you have a problem, if it's with an engine, let's say it will start like with an engine because there's the most adjustments on an engine so let's say arguably you have this engine that's stalling Let's say it's a gasoline engine that's stalling uh the fact of the matter is do your do you never never discount your basics on any machine and when i worked for the oscilloscope company that was the biggest thing I used to teach a class back the basics because people would say they would they would be a stack up of what we call engineering a stack up of tolerances. Well, the carburetor was a little too lean. The one vacuum hose was leaking. The intake manifold was sucking a little bit of air over here. All right, so all these things you put it together, and when it had the right set of circumstances, like base saturation on a soil test, the right set of circumstances, the engine would stall. When it wasn't particularly a hundred percent the right set of circumstances, it did not stall. It may have ran on the roof, may have done nothing wrong. So that was like me with my body. Right today, I felt pretty good. All right, did I feel a hundred percent? I didn't know what a hundred percent was because I was always sick. So as a child and as a young as a young adult into my twenties and thirties, but I functioned. I was productive in society. But to me, that would be like saying, you know, if you have a a, a farmer that is a you know used to getting 400 bushels of yield out of his corn and he only gets 300 he thinks he's a failure he's he's hanging his head in shame if you get a guy that only gets 100 bushels out of an acre and he gets 150 he's doing a dance and he's he wants to put a neon sign pointing to the field so i you know i never felt well so if I never felt well, then I that was to me that was my norm. So if you have something with a machine and the machine is doing 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 having a misbehavior, I say, well, it always did that. It always did that. So what you need to first think about is say to yourself, well, you know, do you think that X Y Z company would create a hay baler that keeps throwing a belt off, or create an engine that uh, that stalls every once in a while? Or a or a combine header that doesn't go that doesn't go up and down all the time. Sometimes it raises up and sometimes it doesn't. And I'm just making up these things on the fly, so you have to look at that. But you you have to understand that we have to look at basics first because oftentimes, and if you look at and going back to my medical history, it was the idea of the celiac's and my. My body's response to gluten is what was causing everything to to avalanche and fall out of sync. And that happens with machinery. Now, a lot of people tell you I'm nuts. People tell you I'm nuts anyway. But a lot of people tell you I'm nuts. But I've seen this time and time again. And I know that a machine, an engine, is an inanimate object. It's not alive. It's not a person. It's not an animal. It doesn't have a heart and soul to it all right it doesn't have emotions but often i mean so many times in my life i have seen farm machinery cars trucks race cars all right anything all right and diesel gas engines small engines big engines you name the gamut transmissions automatic transmissions manual transmissions all right and they would act as if they had emotions and they didn't feel well today and the thing is that, so you it's you say some people may say, "Well you know, how can that be? how could it not f- feel well today? How could it not respond well today to feel well when it doesn't know it's just a machine? because usually what it is is a stack up of i said of different elements that happen to come together, so it's like." <clears throat> like a like a recipe for a cake or recipe for some sort of i'm not a cook i just know how to eat a recipe for some sort of you know exquisite gourmet dish i need to have this and this and this and it has to be like this this temperature what have you and if you have one of those elements that are off the machine does a certain level of misbehavior so we cannot discount the basics. We can't go and say, all right, well, you know, that those bolts are tight. There's no air leak on this engine. So you have to go around and look at that. So that's part of it is tactile. And lots of times tactile also means putting a wrench on a bolt and making sure it's tight. So not just does yes feeling as i said before running your hands around but you it all happens to be application specific sort of things that if it's like if it's an intake manifold well you could put your hands around the intake manifold and not going to feel if the bolts are loose and it's sucking air but you could put a wrench on those bolts and you could snug them all up and say wow two of these bolts were pretty loose all right, and the thing is that, and then they'll say, "Ah, that's not going to make any difference, right?" Because oftentimes that little bit of difference takes this intangible piece of equipment that has no heart and soul and gives it a bad day. Tomorrow, you say to me, "Well, why isn't it doing it tomorrow? Why isn't it doing next week? Why did it do it today?" Who knows? But you, but it's. A, I can't give you an exact answer. But it could be the barometric pressure that they. It could be the humidity level that they. It could be something else. It could be just that all of everything happened to to line up the stack up went the other way so do not discount that so when you're facing a piece of a problem with a piece of equipment even if it's in if it's specifically if it's intermittent when something is busted it's busted oh look at that, the thing you know the ignition wire broke there it's arcing oh look at that the fuel pump went bad that's why it doesn't run oh the you know the turbocharger uh wastegate stuck open. that's why there's no boost and you look at it, and that's fine. But the intermittent or the the other things are the ones that really you for you need to diagnose it, like you would diagnose a person or an animal or crop health. You can't leave any stone unturned with that. So the lesson with that is that uh, start with the basics, but then look for some sort of and some sort of pattern. Now, oftentimes a pattern will be established, but oftentimes a pattern may hide itself or there may be no pattern. So with my body, with my health as a young as a boy into a young man is that nobody connected the dots with me, none of the dots, and I was to a lot of doctors and no disrespect to any of them. My parents almost went broke taking me to doctors. Thank God we had good hospitalization, but... The fact of the matter is, is that nobody connected the dots. So nobody said, said, Mrs. Bohax, you know, wh- what is Ray eating for breakfast? Because if now I could look at it as I would get up in the morning, I would feel fine. I would have your know, bacon and eggs with a half a loaf of bread or pancakes or something like that. So no matter what I, no matter what I had for breakfast, I wasn't a cereal guy, a bacon and egg guy, right there. So the thing is that everything, I started the day loading my body with gluten right do we know what gluten was no did my mother know what gluten was no we sl- was sl- loaded with gluten but nobody during them during those all those years of going to doctors said hey mrs Bohax, why don't you why don't we not give ray for four or five days bread in the morning or why don't we not give him for four or five days eggs in the morning or bacon in the morning or whatever it may be sort of thing is that so nobody recognized that they just glossed it glossed over and through my career of fixing engines and fixing machinery to tell you the truth 99% of the time it was not a big idea and then the person stands and scratches their head and they go I can't believe that that you know those that little turn on the mixer screws on the carburetor made such a difference and cured this problem I can't believe that 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 ground wire on this combine that, that looked nice and clean had 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 two ohms, two ohms of excessive resistance drove this whole thing crazy and drove this yield monitor crazy, right? So they say I can't believe that, right? But the fact of the matter is, believe it because you cannot anticipate how things are going to interact and how they are going to impact one another when you're having a, seri- a level of misbehavior. So now, so you, we want to do that. So we start with the basics. As I said, for the fourth time, you start the basics, but then you go from there and you try in the best in your mind to put together some series of events that possibly evoke this condition. And you, and even if you have to get a get a piece of paper and write it down, because people today don't want to write things down for the most part when you write down something and you see it with your eyes it it, it looks completely differently than just thinking about it in your head or typing it on a, on a on a uh on a computer or a pc or an ipad or something like that you take a paper and pencil and you write something down it, it, it it's just different why is it different i have no idea so try to look at the scenario of what's happening so you say to yourself okay well this thing throws the belt off right so it throws the belt off and when is it seems to throw the belt off it seems to throw the belt off on rainy days it seems to throw the belt on belt off on whatever i'm just saying uh on really moist you know from bailing you know bailing hay when it's humid out or whatever i'm I'm making up different scenarios here as examples you need to try to nail it down and then what you do is you look at and say okay what is happening or we know that it doesn't like this on humid days Okay, maybe that's a, it's a data point. Maybe it's valid, maybe it's invalid. Who knows? But we have that in the back of our mind. So now, now you think, talk to yourself and say, okay, well, what would be happening on a humid day or a rainy day that would not be happening on a dry day? Well, there's still water splashing up onto something if it's a road vehicle. All right, if there's water splashing up onto something and now it throws the belt off the serpentine belt, well, is all my shielding in place all right, all my shielding is in place, so that's that's not an issue. Now it's why. So what changed? Because for the past five years, it never threw the belt off, and now if I go through a, a, a puddle, not a deep puddle, but a, a good puddle on a rainy day, there's a forty percent, fifty percent chance that it will throw the belt off. Not a hundred percent, fifty percent chance, and that actually happened to my wife's Escort ZX2. It was about eight or ten years old, and she went through a puddle, deep puddle, with it, and she you know just splashed it wasn't like she was fording a stream and it threw the belt off the serpentine belt so i said this is crazy and then so i said all right well i wrote that off to an anomaly all right which at that particular point i said all right i kept it in the back of my mind i said i'm gonna put the belt back on i don't like this let's see if it happens again because oftentimes when you diagnose something you don't go crazy for the first time it hiccups You say, okay, fine. It hiccuped, whatever it may be, whether the hiccup is the hay bale or whether the hiccup is the ready engine runs or something on your tractor or your sprayer. You just data point. You just look at it, keep and say, okay, let's put the belt back on this particular instance and see what happens. So now, what happened? She rode for three or four months in the rain and never threw the belt off. So that always bothered me, and I said to myself, well, you know, why should have thrown the belt off that day because. It was a good rain but it wasn't like you like she was going across a stream. And then what happened was that about six months later it threw the belt off again. And it would only throw the belt off on a good rain. So I said, All right, what I gotta do is and it's a pain in the neck because these transverse engines you could see but you can't see and you can't see it, you know, and it had a whole bunch of idler pulleys and what have you. So what I said, Well, there's gotta be there's gotta be a condition here where one of the bearings in the idler pulley is starting to go bad, and giving it just a sufficient amount of movement that when the belt gets wet, it's able to walk right off that pulley. So I said, well, that that has to be what it is. So I I said, but I still don't know, I'm still guessing, I'm taking an educated guess. So what I did was that I pulled the, the serpentine belt off, like I said in this particular instance, it's not a pleasant job and you could hardly get in there and see stuff, which lots of times happens with farm equipment, right? You can't see it. So what I did was I took everything off. I said, well, so, and I'm going to start to study the pulleys and I did the best I could to see if there was an alignment issue and I, I couldn't see any alignment issue in the problem and there shouldn't have been an alignment issue because nothing was ever off the engine. Let's say an alternator or a water pump or power steering pump where I could have lost a, a spacer, and lost the space and threw the alignment off. So I said to myself, all right, well, what I'm basically going to do is I'm going to start now. I'm going to tactile. I'm going to start to grab these pulleys and I'm going to try to shake them left and right, up and down to see if there is any movement in them. Nothing was noisy. Then again, only on, on, on not even on a rainy day. On a rainy day, splashing through a, a big puddle and the puddle had to be on the right side of the car. All right, so that's where the belts are. The Transmissions on the left, front wheel drive. So, what happened was I went and I, I went around to it and I saw, and one of the idler pulleys had a little bit of more play. It, I mean, it would be nothing, nothing at all if I were not in this scenario. Excuse me, so nothing at all. I mean, you say this, um, it, it didn't, but compared to the other pulleys, it had a little bit more lateral side to side movement. So, I said to myself, well, the only thing concrete that I could find is this one pulley, and this one pulley has has a little bit more play. I mean, to tell you the truth, I, I wouldn't have even thought anything of it, but I said that it's, the others are much tighter with no play whatsoever, so I have to change this pulley. But so I said, since I'm going to go in there, I'm going to change all of the idlers, because I'm not going to rip this thing apart three times. I think there was three. It's a screwball belt serpentine belt situation on that Z motor. But anyway, but uh, so this had a little bit of play in it. I mean, could I put it put a uh, uh, you know, a dial indicator in there and read the play? No, I mean in theory you could, in actual practice you couldn't, but just a little bit of rocket back and forth. So I said to myself, All right, let me change this while I'm in there, we're change everything take it apart. So I ch- so I changed everything and I put the belt put a new belt on even though the other one visually had no signs of cracking but since that belt walked off so many times three or four times is that i don't know whether it's when it was walking off whether it it damaged a cord in the belt or what have you was or or did something to the to the fabric of the belt visually tactilely i couldn't see it but i said well you know then again lots of times you can't see right you couldn't see my celiac disease but that's always messing me up so i said new belt new new idlers on here let let's see what happens well Put new belt, new idlers on there. The thing, this is ten years ago. Never threw, never threw a belt off again. So the thing, the moral of the story here, is that the little by 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 going through it and analyzing it, and I and realizing that this little bit of play that most people say ah eh, that's absolutely nothing, and I would have had the tendency to say it was absolutely nothing, but that little bit of play in that one pulley was enough given those dynamics of enough water splashing through there and getting that belt off and, and then it didn't, it didn't fall off on every puddle. Like I say, go months without falling off. The thing is that the dynamics played out and that's what you have to do when you're diagnosing something. And you know, same thing is like even on the farm and I, I repeat this, I am not an agronomist. I'm as far from an agronomist as anyone could possibly be. All right, but I... I study things, I look at things, you know what I'm saying? And with my corn crop, I look at it, I study it, and I say to myself, well, this is how this seed, the hybrid that I always plant, responds to In in on Cat Swamp Road. How it responds someplace else, I couldn't tell you, but this is what it does on Cat Swamp Road. And empirically, I have found out what it likes. All right, and and the thing is that, and and also... If anybody who's done soil testing, and like a Slovista, I think I may be pronouncing wrong, soil health test, you know, you could look at your soil, do a soil health test, and I think there's a couple other ones. I did the Slovista twice, and look at my soil health, and I use Midwest Labs, and I'm not saying there's any other good labs, but I use Midwest Labs, but, uh, <clears throat> and, uh, I, you know, I'm, I'm cra- I, I look at my CEC and I look at, I mean, I look at everything, but I look at my CEC and my organic matter, because those are two hard numbers that I'm not, that, you know, I'm not smart enough to truly analyze the others were with only within a range, but you know, I know if my CEC is going up and my organic matter is going up, that's good. <laughs> so, you know, that's all right. The engine's not strong, It's good. And what I have seen on my farm and anybody who does a lot of soil testing will, 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 you know, agree with this most likely. Is that on the soil test, the numbers have changed? They hardly change. I mean, that my CEC went up maybe a tenth or two tenths. What people say was, was in the, you know, the error of how I took the sample or where I took the sample. All right, the organic matter went up maybe two tenths of a percent, maybe three tenths of a percent. It seems to float up and down. All right. the thing is that but the tilt of my soil the tilt of my soil has changed so dramatically the water infiltration the sponginess and as i said at the beginning you know i'm one of the pickers i'm walking i'm walking on my soil hand picking corn carrying it out of my back so i i really get the tactile feel for this soil because i'm walking that soil you know, walking every field maybe not every row but every field all right and, and and a good part of the field as one of the pickers so but you know if you were to look at it if you went to a soils class and you showed soil test a soil test b and you saw just looked at the difference in the in the organic matter, the CEC, and you manipulated the base, situa- the base saturation to get a little bit more in line, you would never ever believe that the tilt of the soil, the feel of the soil, and the sponginess of the soil, the water infiltration changed so much by those almost within the margin of error differences on the soil test and that's what i've seen with engines is that and you have to be a tuner you have to add uh, you, you have to listen to the engine all right the thing basically so let's say arguably you have uh, a noisy valve train and the thing is that you have a noisy valve train and you're adjusting the valves all right so let's say this this let and it's a hydraulic lifter so uh, at, so it's like z- zero not like it's zero zero lash and the, the General Motors or Chevrolet says zero lash in a turn and a half, or some people say two turns. So you're adjusting, the, you're twisting the push rod through your fingers uh, to make to see if it rolls through your fingers, and then what happens, you're, you're putting the preload onto the hydraulic lifter through the nut on the rocker arm, Then they say get it so you have zero lash with, with the push rod like that, on a hydraulic lifter, zero lash means that you can't twist it between your fingers anymore. And they're saying put one more turn or one and a half turns, whatever the book tells you on preload. <clears throat> now anybody who's adjusted excuse me with the clear my throat <coughs> excuse me. Anybody that's adjusted a lot of valves will know that the motor that that you usually don't want to have an excessive amount of preload. It's got to be like Goldilocks, just right. So, and specifically, if you have some sort of performance camshaft in it, but even if you don't have a performance camshaft, that's, that's a stock, bone stock engine, is that you could, you know, if the specification is zero lash and then one and a half to one, you know, one uh, one to one and a half turns, most of the time the engine will like the less turns of the preload in that particular instance. But the point that I'm saying is that if you have the preload where that particular engine likes it then you the the engine will respond and tell you that by running running smoother maybe not dramatically smooth it was didn't run dramatically you're looking for incremental changes here you have to be very intuitive to what's going on just like a high yield farmer has to go in there and look at his crop and be intuitive to the crop it's I think this thing is need a little bit more boron i don't care what the soil test says yeah i'm not saying you don't soil test i'm not saying you don't you'll know, follow science i'm not saying you don't follow mechanics but you have to be you have to listen to it and the thing is that and you come over and say like i mean there was a guy here in town he had a beautiful 72 malibu it was gorgeous there was it was just a regular malibu it looked like an ss but it wasn't but it was a gorgeous car beautiful black paint had nice wheels on it nice rake to it Not a 350 Look, it was nothing under the hood but it was a real looker gorgeous car and uh you know he had, he had problems adjusting the valves on it and the hydraulic cam and um uh, i said to him george I said, let's adjust the valves on this thing. He says, I said, right. and, uh, he says, no matter what I do, they're noisy, it doesn't sound right, and every this and that. Well, he was following the Chevrolet b- book, well, well, I think, well, one, zero lash in one turn, or one and a half turns, and the thing is that, he says, I got them all adjusted, the specifications. I said, well, let's, let's, let's readjust these and see what it likes. All right, so the problems that he was having, and the problem that he was having was an intermittent valve lifter tap. He'd run the engine, he'd run the engine, be quiet. He'd take it for a long ride with his wife, and then all of a sudden he'd stop with a stop sign and get off the highway tap, 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 tap. There tap. was one or two lifters tapping. And then, he, that, then it seemed once it tapped, it would steep, keep tapping until the engine went through a, a cool down and warm up cycle. And then, then it wouldn't tap And then the same thing And he'd go for a ride again another day and it wouldn't tap. So he was going, so he was always chasing these valves because it was a beautiful car. And like you said, if the car didn't look so pretty, I wouldn't care so much if it tapped every once in a while, but such a beautiful car. And it was, and you know, tap, 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 tap right. So the thing is that So what ended up happening is that we ended up running those at like zero lash and a half a turn. So the dynamics of the valve lifters he had in there, the, and, and, you know, the temperature of the oil, the temperature of the coolant, why would two or three of them tap at a certain point? I have no idea. But the thing was that we went back to basics and said, let's readjust these valves, but let's look at it and let's take a little preload off of it. All right, and lots of times, I mean, you know, it's a pain in the neck because you have to do ABA testing, put more preload, less preload, see what it likes. And sometimes it's inconclusive, just like my chemist body chemistry was when I was uh, you know being diagnosed as a young boy. So the thing is we start to close over here is that if i, I want to summarize this for you never say that means nothing or, or that's a, or that's close enough because whenever you start to do that and you put the stack up of tolerances uh, i fix so many engines so many cars over the years as i said before with an eighth of a turn of a screw all right. So the thing basically is, is don't say that that doesn't mean anything. So bring that back to specification and also keep in mind that the specification is only a starting point. That that this engine may like to run at 675 instead of 650. It may like, you know, 5 degrees of timing instead of 7 degrees of timing or, or vice versa. So use that as a starting point, but when you're chasing a a misbehavior an intermittent problem, or an intermittent issue, I should say, is that don't you know? Don't take anything for granted. So you say, he said, "Oh, that you know, electrical problem." We discuss this before another shows. Oh, that ground looks good, right? Well, do a voltage drop test on that ground. All right, see what that see what that ground is. Even if it passes the voltage drop test, temporarily run another ground wire in conjunction with that because and see and see what the story is does now it may take a week for it to 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 act up again so run temporarily run another ground wire so because maybe that ground cable all right under certain conditions maybe it's starting to corrode inside there's a million things, and sometimes you won't even know why but you fixed it You've cured the problem, and you won't even know why. Why did George's Chevy stop tapping when we readjusted the valves that way? It was probably a combination of events, but the thing is that, that at that particular point, we we cured the problem. And when you're trying to, just like I didn't care with my body, when I found that I had celiac disease, what well, they said "Well, stop, we, and then my test came back, to, to typical Ray Bowax medical history, came back inconclusive. So the doctor said to me, well, you know, it's inconclusive for celiacs. <laughs> so why don't you just cut out gluten for a week or two and see how you feel? So the thing basically is, is that when you're looking at this and you're diagnosing something, you're diagnosing an electrical problem. All right, check the alternator output. Check, this, check the alternator output under load using, a, check the, the, um, the cleanliness of the alternator output if you have an oscilloscope. So the thing basically is, is that, you know, if the alternator is supposed to be 14.7 and you're feeding this, this, this processor on your combine, thirteen nine fourteen two. 14.2, well, that may be in the, in the realm, in the realm of, of what the textbook says, but due to stack up of tolerances in that electronics, it may not like that all right so it may not like it so the thing basically is we'll say okay let's so let's run this up at 14.7 instead of 13.9 or 14.2 right so put a battery charger on it and run it with the battery charger and bring the voltage up like I said it's application specific but don't take anything for granted and just like with a soil test you're looking at a soil test and you say to yourself well I look at my base saturation I look at my organic matter I look at my CEC so I look at those things and I look at how my soil performs now versus when how it performed poorly terribly right terribly prior to it being fixed and those numbers are not drastically different they are not and that's what happens with machinery so the thing is that you have a problem with the hay baler it's doing something wrong all right. Start to look at it. Start to say, okay, what's going on over here? You know, is this chain binding? Is there some? Is this pulley slightly worn? All right. Then you have to be a detective. Well, let's look on the gears. Let's look at the wear points on the gears, and 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 see whether the chain is riding up and down or not. Is there a lot of cordal action? A lot of movement in this chain? Maybe this chain you know is stretched enough, not enough that you could really see it, but stretched enough that it's a stack up of tolerances that usually what gets you is that there's a stack up of tolerance and oftentimes those tolerances do not become apparent until a given set of circumstances are evoked it may go you may it may go with no problem whatsoever and then a certain set of set of circumstances become evoked but you need to understand and if i get ready to close you and go to the toolbox test is that You need to, even though these are inanimate objects, they're machines, they're not plants, they're not humans, they're not animals, and I will go as far to say that they do have emotions, not emotions like like you and I have. That they do have feelings, not like feelings like you and I have, is, oh, you know, he's training me in, and I don't you know, I'm sad. It's not that. But the interaction of all of their subsystems, be it on an engine, be it on a hydraulic system, all comes into play and results in some and results in some sort of effect. And that effect is usually what is tripping you up in your diagnostics. So it's so important to to not only to understand all of that, to look at the basics, but then go and and run it through on your mind and say, well, based upon this what the what what could be happening what could be happening here and keep in mind that little little changes you could have a big huge combine right they use that because it's the biggest piece of farm equipment little little changes on a ground circuit for an electrical problem or alternator output or a little bit a little change a change in something as far as the injection pump timing or, or the you know this really comes into play i'll tell you with with fuel injectors both gasoline and diesel because once you start that they start to get dirty and they start to not atomize that fuel properly all bets are off on how that engine's going to run it could run great today, and it could have idle instability tomorrow. It could run, gr- you know, great tomorrow, then have some sort of issue, and that's really with you know specifically with the Tier Four stuff, because the thing is that, you know, it's. it's it's monitoring everything there's so much going on and it's and it needs to go most of the time when people have excessive you know they want to they want to delete a dpf they want to delete everything they want to delete the scr system it's you most of the time i'm not going to say every time most of the time it's because this thing ran and and the fuel delivery is it still, eh, it's in specification, all right? If you were to look at it, but if it's six cylinders, they're all over the map and it's not atomizing the fuel properly. And if you don't atomize the fuel properly on any engine, then all bets are off on how it's gonna run. It may run great today because the humidity is low and it may mask, and that's the word I want to, mask the, the poor atomization. Oftentimes in diagnosing, because we say, that's good enough or that's close enough that it's masking something and that's where you get and you get the frustrations and you get the issues where you're spending a lot of money, and a lot of time and I'm not saying that you're not going to spend the money and time after you listen to this podcast but if you come to the table with the proper mindset then what it's basically going to do, it's going to set the stage you to have success in that diagnostics which in turn is going to give you success and have the machine run properly so if you have any questions or any concerns please feel free to reach reach out to me at hot rod farmer at farmmachinerydigest.com so come on in text we got text you've been with here from ripsaw records We got the hot rod man Yeah, buddy, text. Thank you so much. So, all right, here's our toolbox test question. Put your thinking cap on. I always tell you the same thing. All right, you are getting into some real technical topics about engines at the coffee shop. The discussion turns to ignition advance on a gasoline engine and what determines it. These are the explanations you receive. Farmer A says that it has to do with the piston speed farmer b agrees with farmer a but says that it is also linked to the flame speed farmer c states that it has to do with the engine pinging and farmer d says timing is necessary for the engine to accelerate so those are our four choices as far as what is the basis of ignition timing and uh so you think about that while i get our letter here from mr russell orr in gray ridge missouri so he asked me a question and he says um I, I also have a question for you if you don't mind i never mind any questions i just wish i could answer all of them for everyone uh, on the show but uh, help everybody but i'm not you know i don't know it all i drive an f-250 with a 6.2 liter gas engine during summer we spend lots of times driving from field to field starting irrigation motors we're fortunate that most of our fields are very close together. It usually takes 10 to 15 minutes to get a motor going. And I'd say an average on an, av- an average day, I would do this 10 times. What is the lesser of two evils, idling the truck while starting the pumps or shutting it off and starting back each time? So that is his question. All righty, and I did get back to him through an email, and I, taught, and I asked him whether he minded me using this letter because it's an excellent letter. So w- what I told him to do is to shut the engine off. And why are you going to shut the engine off? My, my rule of thumb is that if you're going to have to idle it for, for more than two minutes, then I would shut it off. For a number of reasons. Well, first of all, you're wasting gasoline, but that's probably the least of it here. That's not one of his questions. All right, then this is for gasoline or diesel. The thing is mm-hmm. that engines have a, sp- and specifically, specifically gas engines and diesel engines also, have a propensity to build carbon at a higher rate when the engine is idling. When the engine is idling, the port velocity through the intake manifold into the cylinder is low, the mixture motion inside the cylinder is low and the air fuel ratio is richer. Now you may say, well you don't know what you're talking about, hot rod, because it's got a fourteen point seven to one air fuel ratio. And that is true that it's fourteen point seven to one in in that way. But since you don't have the complete the the high level of mixture motion the burn characteristics are different and that ends up skewing the oxygen sensor output which then alters the air fuel ratio so you think it's 14.7 to 1 it ought and it thinks it's fourteen point seven to one, but it's not. Also, that what happens is that in every engine there is what's called a crevice volume in the cylinder. And a crevice volume is an area where the fuel can go, but the flame cannot. And that's historically over the top the ring land, from the top ring to the crown of the piston and other little divots or something in divots in the combustion chamber and or sp- mostly around the piston perimeter so that's called a crevice and a crevice volume holds hydrocarbon so the thing basically is is that and when you have low port velocity even though this is a fuel injected engine but you have low port velocity whether it's gasoline injected or or port injected this is i believe is port injected it's irrelevant is that the shearing of that fuel is also keyed up with I mean, let me back that up they also count on they count on the velocity of the port to help shear the fuel and to further break that fuel apart because remember on a fuel inject on a port injected system historically the injector is only 100 millimeters or so from the valve on a direct injection engine it's right into the cylinder all right so they they count on that that port velocity to help break that fuel up but when you have an engine idling you have low port velocity and in turn it has the propensity to want to build a lot of carbon all right because it's going into that crevice region and then also the the hydrocarbons that hang in that crevice region will eventually start to wash past the rings not not, i mean don't be don't go nuts about idling an engine but the thing is that given the scenario here I would shut the engine off, all right? A number of other things are coming into play. He's going to turn on some center pivots so it's warm outside. The coolant is going to stay warm. Everything is going to stay warm. And also as an engine idles, the oxygen sensors start to cool off. Now what happens is that they need to be a certain temperature to act properly, uh, to respond properly and accurately. And most, most of, not all, let's say all modern oxygen sensors have a heater element in it. And this heater element is used to help stabilize the temperature of the oxygen sensor so that it could actually read accurately. Now, it, as a vehicle gets older, an engine gets older, all right, how accurate, how how efficient, by a of word, is that heater element? Well, who knows? But then again, it gets back to port velocity and exhaust temperature and what have you. Is that when? So given that scenario, I would shut that engine off and you're 10 to 15 times, uh, 10 times a day or 10 times a week is not going to make any difference. And I said in my response to, to to Russell is look at all of the engines today have start-stop. Well, most of them have start, which I hate. It's not there for, it's, there, it's the way to save fuel economy. All right, but the thing is that you know, ten times a day shutting this truck on and off, twenty times a day is not is not going to kill it. The oil is gonna be thick, but not thick. The oil is gonna be warm, it's gonna pump up immediately and restart. All right, the coolant is hot, it's gonna start right up, you're not gonna put excessive wear on the starter, but the engine itself is going to be happier all right it's going to live longer it's going to be happier it's going to it's going to build less carbon all those dynamics so i would definitely definitely shut it off and the same thing would be with a diesel and if you guys work a lot of diesels have timers right five minutes or six minutes blah, 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 idle time it shuts right off so i would definitely shut it off and go from there all right so let's get into our toolbox test question call us a day and i am calling a wrap right they say and i'm going back out to pick some corn so uh, Farmer B knows his engines. The rate of ignition advance is keyed from the speed the flame travels across the bore, and that is measured in meters per second. If the flame speed is low, the engine needs more the, the engine needs more head start or advance to keep up with the piston it is designed that the peak cylinder pressure occurs about 14 6 to 14 degrees after top dead center some people say 14 degrees all right but I've read and seen 6 to 14, so someplace about 6 to 14 degrees after top dead center during the expansion, the power stroke. So in essence, the rate of advance on any gasoline engine and a diesel engine too, but we're talking gasoline here, is to allow the peak cylinder pressure to occur at a certain point after the pistons rotation, after pist- the crankshaft rotation past top dead center. So if it's a slow burn, in that piston then you need to give it more of a head start because the flame actually travels slower than the piston if it's a quick burn then it doesn't need as much of a lead as, as much of a head start as it would be if it was a slow burn so that is what the key that is so, hey listen i want to thank you so much for tuning in and for listening and i just want you to know that i appreciate every one of you please send me some more names send me some more i want to find out where you're from where you're listening from i love that enjoy getting it but I'm enjoy putting pins in my pins in um, in my map with your name on it and then what the hot rod farmers pulling for you the american farmer and rancher my beloved beloved america remember remember just you know think about all those things when you're diagnosing something very very important it's never just okay bye bye